I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in our series, God and the Whole Person. In following Jesus, we often talk about the heart, or the soul, or the mind, but how do we follow Jesus as human beings in bodies? What does it mean for even our physical bodies to undergo the process of spiritual formation? When my uh, dad first learned of his many health woes that would eventually kill him, he also learned that nearly all of them were preventable and reversible with simple diet and exercise. The doctors told him as much, and the rest of us continued to echo what the doctor had said as he insisted on his terrible habits. And he told us again and again in his kind of thick southern drawl, Something to the effect of, the good Lord wants to take me, he's going to do it if I'm fat, skinny, or otherwise. That's what he said all the time. (laughs) For my dad, uh, the body and care for the body were both helpless pawns in the immutable preordination of God's grim reaper schedule. God already had it on a calendar, and that was that, apparently. And he would say, why even care for the body at all when the soul is checking out of the body one way or another? Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Yes, Genesis chapter 1. You'll be fine. We are in a series throughout the season of Lent about what it means to know and love God with the entirety of our personhood, meaning our hearts and our souls, the things we always talk about in Christian circles, yes, absolutely, but also with our minds and, tonight, with our bodies. The body, I would argue, uh, this animated miracle of flesh and blood is at the heart of so much disagreement and misunderstanding about what it means to be a human being at all and what it means to follow Jesus. More than 2,000 years ago, Plato argued that the body was actually just the prison of the soul. The real you, Plato said, is the invisible, immaterial, non-physical soul encased within this you know, deteriorating meat bag of your physical form. Uh, just like Yoda told Luke Skywalker. Remember that? In the swamps of Dagobah, he pinched Luke's shoulder with his little puppet hand, and he said, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Eventually, the idea of the body as um, merely a prison house of the immaterial soul, the soul is the true essence of the human being rather than the material, corporeal form of the body, That idea permeated certain Christian traditions as well. In particular, I think, on the heels of something called rapture theology, which was somewhere in the 19th century. Yes, it's that new. Around 1820, which was just some 200 years ago, if you're counting, a teenage girl in Scotland claimed to have a vision of the end of the world in which the souls of the saved would be sort of beamed up out of the world, or raptured, to use uh, one word in the New Testament, just before all this crazy apocalypse stuff really goes down on earth. And then later, a guy called John Darby argued the same thing in London, and this new, what was at the time, very uh, fringe idea gained some momentum in Europe. Darby traveled to North America teaching his new rapture theology, which eventually landed with someone called Cyrus Schofield, who later published the best-selling Schofield Study Bible with that brand new rapture idea baked right into the liner notes. Yada, 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 left behind, yada, 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 wish we'd all been ready, and the rest is history. So, 
the Christian version of Plato and Aristotle and Yoda and the rapture goes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing, your invisible, immaterial soul is the real you, the actual you. But for right now, the real you, the soul, is kind of locked up in the temporary storehouse of the body until A, the body cracks and breaks and the soul whooshes up to heaven or I guess teleports there, I don't know, which in this line of thinking, heaven itself is also this immaterial soul kingdom in the clouds. Or B, God sort of, uh, on a whim or at some point that he's planned and we don't know about vacuums up all the souls into heaven during something called the rapture. But before the 19th century, that idea and that doctrine did not exist. And to this day, most Christian traditions around the world don't believe it. But I did. Heck, I believed the heck out of that thing. Only, only thing I was taught, actually. As a young man, I remember specifically standing over my grandfather's coffin, and someone asked, would you like to say goodbye to Pappy? And this is a true story. I remember looking at his corpse and saying, and believing, this isn't him. He's not here. In my mind, the actual Pappy had vacated the temporary vessel of his body forever. That's what I was taught. Never knew any different. In fact, I didn't even know the whole rapture thing was so new until I was all grown up. Can you imagine my surprise? I remember reading one day and did a double take. The 19th century, I said, this thing got cooked up around the same time as typewriters and handguns. Not exactly the ancient robes and sandals world that I picture when I think of the early church or, or you know, the kind of marble columns and togas that I think of when I imagine the ancient Greco-Roman world. This thing is barely younger than the automobile, but what do I know? Now, just because something is new doesn't make it wrong, but it should at least raise a red flag of warning or a question mark. Hey, how come no church father or mother or monk or mystic or theologian or scholar or Christian thought this thing up for 2,000 years? And maybe you'd wonder, even if you want to squabble about that theology and what exactly it means and doesn't mean, you'd ask, does it really matter? Something happens when you die. Something happens at the renewal of all things. I guess we'll see, won't we? But it's not exactly that simple. My wife, Abby, tells a story about when she was eight years old. She remembers this vividly, and it has had this kind of scarring effect on her. She remembers watching an older woman in the church bathroom applying lipstick as she leaned into the mirror. And Abby said to the woman, she says, I can't wait until I'm old enough to wear lipstick. And the woman turned to her and said, I imagine with a terrifying leer, oh, sweetie, the rapture is going to happen long before you're old enough to wear lipstick. <laughs> and she remembers feeling terrified. You won't have any lips for lipstick. <laughs> you, won't, you won't be embodied at all, and apparently very soon. Why care for the body? Why care about the body if the body is, in essence, a doomed rental car? And yet, for all our weird Greek and Jedi assumptions about the body and the soul, it hasn't stopped us from using the body to color most of our most hotly debated theological, socio-political, and cultural debates. Think about it. Race and diversity, gender and sexuality, identity, human rights, each of these things are hotbeds of disagreement that hinge on what one believes about the body. We've been arguing about the human body for a very long time inside and outside the church. 
In the second century, actually, a movement called Gnosticism kicked up all kinds of trouble by insisting that either Jesus was all divine and didn't actually have a true human body, he was kind of posing as a human, but he was really a spirit or a god, or that his body was all human because he wasn't God at all. The idea being those two things can't coexist. And it's sort of the same argument we're having today, isn't it? Many Christians emphasize the godness of Jesus, but they feel real squirmy about the idea that he was actually a human as well, that he had to learn and ask questions and get tired and die. And then you have these kind of uh, people on the more progressive spiritual persuasion side of the aisle And they love the human Jesus, a noble teacher, a wise mystic, sage, but that's it. He's just a guy in a body, not God at all. The physical body has for thousands of years now stirred debate and divided belief around Jesus and God and human beings. And for the last few weeks, we've talked about desire. We've talked about shame. We've talked about the soul. We've talked about the mind. Tonight, we are going to talk about the body, which finally brings us to Genesis chapter 1. Would you guys stand with me as we read, beginning with verse 26? In the familiar story, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So... God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now turn the page to chapter 2 and read beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man or a human from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. So in the familiar Genesis story, most of the stuff that God makes, if you remember, just, you know, small stuff like stars and galaxies and oceans and birds and reptiles and all that, most of that stuff, he just speaks into being. Let there be light and all that. But when God's symphony of creation crescendos and climaxes the masterpiece moment of the story, he reaches into the dirt and forms human beings. He breathes into them his very life and animates their physical forms. In Eden, before human sin enters the picture, as God the artist creates just the way he wants to create, human beings are embodied. The physical attributes of their bodies are innate to God's good design. Male and female, he created them in bodies, engendered physical, corporeal forms. In fact, the first human words recorded in the Hebrew scriptures are a beautifully visceral bit of bodily poetry. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Notice that language, bones, flesh, nakedness. In the story, Eve, the woman is created as quote, a suitable helper for the man, Adam. Now that word helper can be misleading. We've talked about this a lot in English because depending on the reader, helper sounds like it implies subordination. The Hebrew word that 
uh, is used there that my Bible translates as helper is Azer. It's used often in the scriptures to describe God himself. And helper in that sense fits. You know, God is our helper, but there's no absolutely no subordination implied whatsoever. God is our helper. He's not inferior to or beneath or unequal or, you know, like a, 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 a beneath human beings whatsoever. Then there's that word suitable. It's a compound word, konegdao in Hebrew, and it can be tricky to translate because it actually combines one word that means alike and another word that means opposite or against or in front of. Adam is like Eve because they're both human beings, but they're different because Adam is a man or male and Eve is a woman or female, and they are suitable for one another because they're both made in God's image and they are made for relationship. This has been the alike but opposite or in front of or different than motif that really permeates the creation narrative, night and day, sky and earth, land and sea, man and woman, similar but different complementary pairings. In fact, Eden itself, Bible scholars point out, is something called a high place in which heaven and earth overlap and they come together in glorious union. And in the story, the man and the woman, alike but opposite, come together in physical intimacy and become what the writer calls one flesh. Then, you know, you turn the page, everything gets ruined in chapter 3. The human beings are led astray in the story by a talking snake that we later learn in the narrative is God's enemy, the devil. Human sin enters the story, and with it, death and destruction. And this is an easy detail to overlook. Immediately after the man and the woman disobey God for the very first time, the first things they notice are their bodies. In Genesis 2, we read Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. But then we read the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, their bodies haven't changed, but the way they see and understand their bodies has. Before, the body was good, nothing to be ashamed of. Now it is to be covered in shame, and then they hide themselves from God. They hide their nakedness with fig leaves, and they hide their entire bodies from God. In the same way that sin has distorted and corrupted our bodies by unleashing pain and disease and death, it has also perverted our perception of and experience of our bodies with shame. So if the scriptures are telling us the truth when they say that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the work of the devil, then the gospel or the good news of Jesus is about more than saving the soul or renewing the mind. It is also about the redemption of the body. If we read the story of the Bible, then we should expect to see a whole person redemption plan. Look at it like this. One of the more misunderstood passages in the tragedy of Genesis 3 comes at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, labor, you will give birth to children. Now, the word that my Bible translates as pains is elsewhere translated as toil. Exact same word, but different kind of meaning. It's actually the same exact word God uses to describe what's going to happen to work as a result of the fall. It will become very difficult. It will become hard work or toil. And the word my Bible translates as childbearing uh, more literally refers to not labor and birth per se, but to conception and pregnancy or to the entire experience of conceiving and, and um, bearing children. Meaning it seems as though 
These specific consequences of human rebellion on the woman's body are more complex than just, oh, now it's going to physically hurt when you deliver children. It seems as if another way of understanding the consequences of sin is that toil and pain and hardship have now infected what was intended to be entirely good, that is the process of making and having kids. Now, I've personally witnessed the you know, childbirth several times, and it is, it is, as Chandler being once famously observed, one disgusting miracle. And obviously the experience is different for everyone, and it's not a contest or anything like that. I don't mean to compare experiences. But when Abby had our first kid, I was honestly stunned. This is not hyperbole. I only knew about childbirth from sitcoms at this point. And uh, she did, you know, the natural thing. She didn't have any drugs. And she was so peaceful and determined and stoic. It was obvious to everyone in the room that what she was doing was very hard work, but it wasn't the sitcom stereotype of like screaming agony and she didn't break my hand and all that stuff that usually happens. The, the simplistic reduction of childbirth into a pain punchline, I think, as an observer and helper in the process, falls hopelessly short of capturing the complexity of the act. But as many of you know, childbirth can be difficult, and as many of you know all too well, conception and pregnancy can be wrought with aggravation and worry and heartbreak and agony. The tendrils of death, as far back as Genesis 3, have invaded even the sacred space of a mother's body, her womb, the place where life itself begins. The enemy, as the scriptures say, comes to steal and kill and destroy. And all the way back in Genesis 3, God is already promising to do something about it. So a little bit later in the story, God speaks to one man, Abraham, and he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, if you know the story, the only problem is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are elderly and infertile, and they've experienced the effects of the curse on making children firsthand, the hard work and pain of conception and pregnancy. And at this point in the story, they've given up. But God enters the story to begin a redemptive work, not in the saving of their souls, first and foremost, but in reversing the power of the curse over the body. You will have children, God says, and they will have children. See, in the ancient world, fertility and big families were kind of quantifiable indication of God's honor and blessing and favor over a person, over a couple, over a family. Infertility, on the other hand, was understood as shameful and as accursed. For decades, Abraham and Sarah have walked within a lived bodily experience of the curse, of shame. And God reaches into their story not to first save their souls for heaven, but to first redeem the blessing over the body. And then the story of redemption begins. And as God's redemption plan unfolds, it is made manifest in power through real, earthy, physical acts of salvation. Think about in Exodus, for example. God says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, their real human embodied suffering. So I have come down to rescue them 
from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them physically up out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God's rescue plan for Israel isn't, listen, bear down and white knuckle it because one day you get to go to heaven. And that's when the saving really happens. His plan is for the whole person for the physical experience of Israel embodied in a time and in a place and eventually in eternity at the renewal of all things, both and. And just as this saving work is not about the soul only, it's also about the body, but not the body only either. In the scriptures, you are a soul and you are a mind and you are a body, One thing only is not truly you, while the other things aren't. All of it is you, mind, body, soul. God comes to and saves his people in their mental, spiritual, and physical realities, most notably and essentially in Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning, John famously wrote, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The human body is the arena for the agony and ecstasy of the entire human experience. The suffering and anxiety of the mind can become knots in the stomach. The debilitation of the heart and the pain and the soul effervesce in the sins of the body, lust, gluttony, or violence. Whatever we are, all of it is woven into encased in, expressed through the blood and meat and bone of the human body. The electrifying sensory overload of erotic love between a husband and wife, very much in love. The disarming catharsis of being held by someone you love in the throes of great suffering and grief. The transcendent heaven meets earth moments when a child throws their arms around their mother or father in a gesture of shameless, vulnerable affection. All of that, the brokenness and bleeding, lust and love, violence and affection, euphoria and suffering unfold within the body, formed from dust, and to dust it will return. Whatever you believe about God and the world, you believe it in a body. So what makes the Christian promise of salvation unique in all the world. That God himself was embodied in Jesus. It can be easy to reverence an incomprehensible and invisible deity, but if God made himself like us, if the word became flesh, then the all-powerful God of the universe can know and love us with experiential empathy And we can know and love him, that God has entered the most undignified shame of physicality, born blood-streaked and screaming like all babies, but unlike most of us, amongst the flies and excrement of livestock to poor teenagers in a cave. He was tempted, like all of us, in the body. He suffered, like all of us, in the body. He had to be nursed and fed. He got tired and hungry. He got sick. God had to use the bathroom and drink water and take naps like all of us, but unlike most of us, he was persecuted and hated 
and beaten within an inch of his life and suffered a horrific and shameful death. If the word became flesh, then God's redemptive purposes have been unleashed across the entire tragedy of the human experience. From scraped knees to wayward souls, he has sought and found us. From broken hearts to broken bones, he has saved us. Yes, God is in the business of saving souls, but every bit as much he is in the business of redeeming the body. And the body, all of us already know, is a broken place. But the world around us, in many ways, insists that it is not. If we, as disciples of Jesus, are engaged in the lifelong work of spiritual formation to allow every aspect of our personhood to be brought under the loving rule and reign of King Jesus, what does that mean for our bodies? What does it mean for your sexual desire to be redeemed by Jesus? Not later as a soul in heaven, but beginning today in your body. What would change about the way you eat or drink if God's redemption plan was made more manifest in your body now? Do you live by default according to Plato's philosophy of the body as the perishable non-you? Or do you believe that the word was made flesh, and that God breathed into dust and made our bodies good in the beginning? The corrupted tendrils of sin don't simply hang like a foreboding rain cloud over our eternal future, waiting to be dispelled by a magical saving prayer at youth camp, and that's it. Sin has consequences now in the body. No one understands this more than the God who saves who became flesh himself in Jesus, who lived in the body, was tempted in the body, suffered in the body, whose body died, and whose body rose again triumphant over death. If that story of solidarity with King Jesus, his victory over death, is it being revealed in your physical reality now? Yes, on a coming day on the horizon at the renewal of all things. Yes, absolutely in full triumphant glory. But what about right now? Is that story changing the waking reality of the body? No worldview dignifies the body as much as the way of Jesus. The pain and the joy of being embodied, your, your gender, your sexuality, your ethnicity, the sanctity of life, the tragedy and injustice of death, all of it understood by God as a lived reality and all of it saved and redeemed by God, the only God who made his dwelling among us, the word becoming flesh. How then do you honor God with your body, a temple of God's Spirit in you? How do you honor God with your body and the way that you work and the way that you rest in your diet, nutrition, fitness, in your pursuit of healing through both the miraculous and medical means in the way that you suffer? Is your sexuality and gender brought into the full beauty of God's redemption plan for the body in your marriage or your singleness, or your celibacy. If God comes to save not just the soul, but the body, and if he is carrying out that work in us now, not waiting to begin it in eternity, 
What changes in your lifestyle of the body for the sake of faithful obedience to the truth? Once uh, someone shared a funny anecdote with me about two groups of friends with different perspectives on fitness. Now, uh, as I understand it, one friend was sort of the stereotypical health nut, fitness enthusiast with, you know, a disciplined workout routine and strict healthy diet, all the stuff. The other friend was uninterested in these things, and um, this uninterested friend observed the amount of work and discipline that the health nut friend invested in their lifestyle and said, no thanks to all that. And uh, as I recall, the friend was that was uninterested in the strict fitness lifestyle said, well, maybe they're healthier, but I've got to be happier. And I remember thinking about that. I laughed, and then I thought, oh, that's an interesting phrase. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everyone's commitment to diet and exercise should look exactly the same or trying to make anyone feel bad if they don't hit the gym every single morning or whatever it is. But the inference in that musing, maybe they're healthier, I've got to be happier, might imply something more. It seems to suggest, and I think a lot of us feel this way, I think a lot of us think this way by default, it seems to suggest that attention to physical well-being, to things like diet and exercise, can make someone unhappy, or that a person who doesn't even worry about something so purely physical like diet and exercise would be freer and more content and happier. Never mind the unfortunate mountains of medical research that we have that connect physical well-being with mental and emotional health, what does this kind of thinking reveal about the way that we understand our spiritual formation? Are we not embodied people? Does God only care about prayer, or does he also care about a jog? Does God want only our, our, our hearts and our minds to be pure, only our souls to be saved, or does he also care if our bodies are healthy and redeemed and saved? It's difficult for us to imagine that God wants both, I think. And I wonder if we've ever stopped to consider all of those things are part of the exact same reality. Not given over to ridiculous cultural narratives about magazine beauty and social media fitness, but integrated embodied people who take seriously the reality of the word made flesh, that it is very difficult for our bodies to thrive when our souls are afflicted. And it is similarly nigh impossible for us to adequately care for our spiritual well-being while completely neglecting our bodies, which are every bit as us, as our souls. Not to idolize the body, not to be given over to vanity or self-obsession or to cultural narratives about beauty, anxieties of the body, its perfect shape, decorating it with the right clothes and showcasing it with the best pictures, none of that. The body, like the soul, is broken and bent by sin, and it will break down eventually, and it will die. I'll be 40 in June, and I can say from these few decades of experience that for some reason stuff hurts more than it did when I was 20, and then it hurts longer too. That's weird. Go figure. Uh, When I was 18 and would get tattoos, it was painful, but, you know, I guess I had something to prove, so I was really excited about the whole thing. And now I don't have anything to prove anymore with tattoos, and every time I go to see Kyle Oxford, halfway through it, I'm like, what am I doing here? This is miserable. And I almost stop him every single time, but, you know, then he gave up some of his time, and I don't want to make him feel bad. So really, it's for him. The whole thing's for him. Uh, Our bodies, this side of resurrection will not be completely restored or redeemed. That happens later. It does happen, but later. Stay tuned 
for next week, by the way. Kind of an important party for us uh, as Christians. But we do not abandon the work of spiritual formation and simply await the comprehensive glory of eternity one day later. We are following Jesus now, here, in all the imperfect glory of today and in our bodies. And we follow Jesus with our hearts, with our minds, with the soul, and with our bodies. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to teach us how to do that well. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.